Today's episode of In the 19th Century comes from a very special place within the School of Music at the Australian National University in Canberra in the Australian Capital Territory. We are meeting on the lands of the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional owners of this beautiful and peaceful place. This is their country and we acknowledge that this land was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and yet to come. Today I'm joined by Dr. Scott Davey, who is an eminent concert pianist and specialist in the work of Sergei Rachmaninoff. He also happens to be the director of the ANU Keyboard Institute. We think that the Institute contains the largest collection of historic pianos in the Southern Hemisphere. And the special thing about the collection is that it is not static and locked away like a museum. Many of the instruments are not only accessible to students, but also playable. Today, Scott is going to talk to us about this remarkable collection and play excerpts of 19th century music on some of the instruments made in that period. Settle in for a very special episode of In the 19th Century as we take you on an odyssey into the sounds of an era. Dr. Scott Davey, welcome to the In the 19th Century and thank you for so generously um, giving us your time today to explore the world of the piano in the Victorian age. Um, I'd also like to thank your colleague Matt Barnes who has um, masterminded the sound recording for today's um, episode. Um, first of all, um, I'd like to talk to you about the music that you selected for our introduction and for our outros for today's episode because it's really quite remarkable and very evocative. That's a performance of Rachmaninoff um, playing the piano. It's um, <laughs> sort of in terms of historical performance, it's, it's sort of the other way, so that was recorded back, I think, in the 1920s. Um, it's fra a famous aria um, from an opera by Gluck. Um, but I like it because uh, it's really great melody playing. And keyboard instruments, while they're ubiquitous, um, they're actually quite hard to make melodies on. Um, if you're singing or if you're playing the violin or playing the flute, um, you're always constantly producing sound, which is how you get through a melody. Um, a keyboard instrument, by definition, is more like a percussion instrument. Uh, when you play a note, um, literally you don't have to do anything to keep the note going except to keep your finger down. So playing a melody um, is actually a great art, and that's one of the finest examples I know. 
Well, it was very beautiful and I, I feel like you've introduced me to something I, I hadn't experienced before, so thank you for that. Um, before we launch into the world of the 19th century piano, I thought it'd be great for our listeners to know a little bit more about your own career as a soloist and also what brought you to the ANU School of Music. Well, firstly, I'm not an expert in historical keyboards. Um, it's um, uh, just really by luck um, that I've en- ended up here. Um, it's uh, I applied for a job. I've been working at the Sydney Conservatorium for quite a few years. And this collection here is something that was started back uh, around about 2005 by Geoffrey Lancaster. And as many of your listeners probably know, the School of Music uh, at ANU has been um, up and down over the past um, uh, decade or more. Um, And one of the things that uh, Professor Lancaster got going was this collection and and started collecting instruments and commissioning copies uh, of old instruments as well. And so this collection uh, was here when I started, although it was um, it hadn't really been looked after to a to a high degree uh, in the intervening years. Um, so I've had quite a lot of fun learning about it and, and putting it all together. And your own career, you specialise in Rachmaninoff. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? So, so as a as a pianist, I mean, I, I play whatever I'm asked to play <laughs> if it's commercial work. But as an academic, I did uh, do postgraduate degrees on Rachmaninoff. Um, so that's um, sort of my speciality there, and it's quite nice to actually uh, also play the music of, of uh, the people that you uh, do research on. Mm, absolutely. We're going to talk a little bit more about Rachmaninoff later as we get into the century. Um, but first of all, um, before we um, talk about the actual keyboards in the Institute's collection, I want to take us back in time, um, back into the very period in which these pianos were being made um, and played. Um, There's a scene of a young woman in a black hooped crinoline dress standing beside an oddly shaped piano alone on a wild stretch of the New Zealand beach in the Jane Campion film The Piano. It's become an enduring image um, associated with the colonial piano culture of the time. Um, It is the character of Ada, played by Holly Hunter in Campion's complicated story about a piano marooned in the middle of what becomes sort of a colonial horror story of sorts. Um, Hunter is, you know, may well be the leading lady of the film, but it is in fact the Broadwood and Sons square piano at the centre of the drama, which is the main character of the film. It's both a force for desire, fear, freedom, happiness, and at times great violence. The keys in fact become the voice of Ada, who is mute and does not speak throughout the entire film. That particular Broadwood square piano, though, would not have been the only a keyboard that was ever transported to the colony. In fact, there was you know, a very vibrant um, tra- traffic, if you like, of pianos during the period, um, all travelling from the centre of the piano market in, in England, in London, over to the sort of far-flung colonies. Um, I'd really like to know a bit more about this sort of market for pianos in the period and the extraordinary innovations that were occurring because it seems to me there were so many different types of pianos that people could buy, so many different markets that they were reaching. Um, So it'd be really lovely to know about that and also the sound that changed with these innovations that took place. So going back to the end of the 18th century, um, the piano was... uh while still still in its sort of infancy, um, following off from the popularity of the harpsichord, um, the piano was already already um, uh, an instrument that was um, owned by many people. Um, the piano, and perhaps only really also the guitar, 
is good in the sense that it can accompany um, a violin, for example, or a cello, uh, or a flute, um, are usually only going to play one line. So there's something about a piano which makes it quite useful in many circumstances for, for making music. And of course, this is years before um, recording became uh, possible. Um, making music um, together was um, a, a social activity. And as you can perhaps see by some of the um, instruments along the wall, uh, underneath the window, um, which are all square pianos. Um, they're a lot squ uh, smaller than, than the modern piano, and they're actually quite light mm -hmm. as well, which meant uh, you, two people could lift them quite easily, and quite often even um, they're on a sort of table as opposed to the legs being attached. Uh, and one person really could lift one of these instruments off a table. So you've got the notion of portability along with um, how easy they are to use in all sorts of um, music-making um, circumstances. So they're very, very popular, very easy to take around. We know that there was an instrument that came out on the first fleet. Um, there's lots of dispute about exactly which is the first piano to come to Australia. Um, but there are um, examples uh, of many of the ones that did come out over the years. Um, the oldest instrument that we have here uh, was built around 1770, uh, by a person uh, in the Alsace uh, region, um, sort of between France and Germany. So whether one says Angrion or whether one says Henrian, it doesn't really matter too much. Um, but that instrument, uh, uh, which is in the corner, uh, just over there, which I'll play for you in a minute if you want, um, has got a, a really uh, unique sort of sound. It's quite different to what we imagine from a modern piano sound, which uh, is a lot more resonant um, due to its um, greater... Uh, weight and, and and the force that comes from that. Shall we play from yeah. that now, now okay. that you've mentioned it? Okay, um, sure. I'll play you a few notes. I'll just go over that. That would be wonderful. We're going to talk about this piano a little bit more later because it's actually also been a key component of um, a project here at the ANU um, involving First Nations musicians and composers. Just um, setting up our sound here because we are actually moving around the room as we speak. This is a very sort of hands-on um, in the 19th century episode today. So you'll hear all kinds of things coming out as well as fabulous piano music. So if I play you just a couple of chords on the piano. sound of the instrument is a lot lighter. Mm -hmm. It's uh, almost a little bit like a, a sort of um, plucked instrument from a, a slightly earlier period. Although um, if I play a couple of louder notes like that, you can hear it's still got quite a brassy sound. Um, and yeah, it can be quite unique. What's also interesting about this instrument is that um, underneath we don't have any pedals. Uh, we only have um, these sort of levers which are used with the knee. One of them makes the notes hold on as you'd normally expect. Um, but the others are called moderators and they change the sound. That's uh, one of the moderators. There's another one here that makes it softer. And what's interesting is that these moderators um, were what really led to the, um, the growth of the piano. 
It's um, really a stunning sound. You hear sort of ghosts of the harpsichord coming through. Yes, but what was different about the harpsichord was that you couldn't have these moderators. Mm. And the moderators, while they seem like uh, sort of a faddish thing to us now, um, they, they're what sort of um, added to the popularity of the piano as it started to, to be produced. With a harpsichord, because there's a quill that plucks the string, you can't put anything between that plucking mechanism and the string. But on these instruments, because you've got a hammer that hits the string, they discover that if you, for example, put in a piece of cloth or something like that, or if you somehow got in the way of the hammer and the string, you could produce all these different sounds. Mm. And I mean, it didn't really last for very long, but the fact that people found this interesting meant that more people wanted to experiment with these instruments, and that led to the greater popularity of the piano and eventually its dominance over the harpsichord. And what do we know of Henri Henriot? Um, not a lot, actually. Um, he's, he had a son um, who was also called Henry and who, who identified as German, so that's why also the name Henry Henry and his sort of quite appropriate. Um, I, the, the person who donated this instrument and a few other of the really important instruments here, uh, Dr. Andrew Nolan, uh, has done a little bit of research on him. Apparently he got a little bit involved in politics around the time of the French Revolution and uh, perhaps was more interested in that in, than ultimately in making instruments. Mm. Well, we're very lucky to have it and I'm really fascinated by this project which has expanded the repertoire of this instrument in many ways, which um, is the, um, I think it's called the Nagaraburia um, project. Yes, and Nagaraburia is a collective of indigenous composers which Dr. Christopher Sainsbury, who works here, um, leads. Um, last year, 2020, we thought it might make an interesting project to ask indigenous composers to write new music for this instrument, given that it was um, created around 1770. And of course, that's a very powerful date in, in Australian uh, history. So uh, the ABC, uh, uh, we're very grateful to them because they gave us some funding uh, to commission uh, four new works. And uh, they're recorded and, and released, uh, the ABC released them first of all uh, through broadcast on the radio, then via a podcast, and now they're available for streaming under the name, I think it's Nara Barria Piana, or mm. Piana, P-I-Y-A-N-N-A, which is more of an indigenous spelling of the instrument. And there was, I, I, when I listened to the documentary on it, which I will put the link on to our um, social media, um, it was really fascinating listening to the musicians talk about their um, somewhat ambivalence towards potentially using this instrument. Was this the right thing to do to, to actually work with a you know, colonial instrument and to, that is really associated with the Western music tradition? Um, but once they'd sort of worked through those matters, they were able to find ways to really expand on that instrument and to delve into it in other ways and create new stories, really. Yeah, they all had, and, and this was really um, the, the heart of the project. Um, I didn't know how they'd be asked. Um, they all had a range of different uh, reactions. Um, but it was really the notion that they could indigenize this instrument, they could make, make it part of their culture through writing for it that ultimately I think all of them uh, saw as being a potentially um, more powerful thing than ignoring it.
go back a little bit, we have this fabulous image here that I have, which is on the social media, of um, Queen Victoria. This is, we're going straight back into Victorian colonial times here. Queen Victoria sitting there watching her beloved um, Prince Albert play for Mendelssohn um, in, in the, the, probably in Buckingham Palace. And I just wondered if you could tell us much about her influence and Albert's influence on the popularity of the piano during this period. Uh, well, first of all, um, Albert apparently knew Mendelssohn uh, prior to his marriage um, to, to Victoria, later Queen Victoria. Um, and uh, so therefore, uh, and, and being German in, in culture where music was um, very important, um, there was always this notion of music making. Um, it's quite an interesting picture that you've got there and that I... The, the piano itself seems to be sort of behind some cabinetry. So it's sort of, apart from being able to see Prince Albert's uh, hands, it's actually a little bit difficult to know precisely what sort of instrument he's playing on. Um, one's tempted to say that it's an upright piano, but that's probably a little bit too early, um, given the dates there, although hard to tell. Um, but um, the, the notion uh, of um, the family... Um, as I think a lot of people probably know, um, many of the Christmas traditions that we have um, date from uh, this time and they were popularised um, by the British royal family. And also the notion of um, you know, music being a sort of family activity that people come together around the piano, I think that also can be sort of fairly much dated to this time. Mm, and she also was a great fan of the Broadwood piano because I think she had a number in her collection. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Broadwood was um, probably the leading English maker, he had actually started working for a harpsichord maker uh, in London by the name of Shudi. Uh, and after he married, um, after Broadwood married um, Shudi's daughter, he eventually took over the firm and they started making pianos. Uh, this would have been around the 1780s. Um, and indeed Broadwood, uh, well, as well as sort of um, inventing what we refer to now as the English action, which is how the uh, the hammers strike the keys in, a, in an English piano, which is different to the other type of action which was common, which is referred to now as the Viennese action. Um, as well as um, developing that, Broadwood, for example, uh, took out the patent on the foot-operated pedal, so lifting of the dampers, uh, the instrument that I was just playing a few minutes ago. As I mentioned, it, it, the um, dampers were lifted through a knee lever. So I think it was 1783 or 1793, mm. I can't recall exactly, that uh, Broadwood took out a patent. Uh, for the um, the foot pedal, so a hugely influential maker. His pianos uh, were made throughout the um, the nineteenth century, and I think even into the twentieth century. And then there was a resurrection of the company, uh, and I think the label still exists to this day. Although I can't really say much about the quality of the instruments. Well, the one that's um, that I found um, that I was quite fascinated by that Queen Victoria had. It was delivered in, um, on the 11th of November in 1887 to Buckingham Palace called the Broadwood Boudoir Grand. So I suspect it's probably one that's played in your bedroom, I suppose. Mm, yeah, there's funny names that they had for them. There's also a name, a cottage grand. Yes. That was another um, thing as well, which meant that it was sort of like ideal if you had a country cottage. Um, but there, I mean, as, as some people can pro probably see by the um, image if you put it on the, um, the site, they're, they're grand pianos. Mm. And so you have a really big difference between the development of the domestic instrument, which started off being the square piano, 
um, and eventually sort of became what we know now today as the upright piano, and then the uh, horizontal instruments, the grand pianos, similar uh, in the design to what was used in the harpsichord. Um, but as you can see from these instruments here, um, uh, the grand piano became um, you know, a very recognisable thing in its own right. So I think it's time now to look more deeply into some of the pianos in this room. Um, so do you want to talk us through some of the instruments here that are particularly special and perhaps play for mm, us? Sure. Um, as you know, the, there's, the School of Music has two different um, areas where this collection is housed. We're upstairs at the moment, we're on the fifth floor. There's also a collection downstairs which has the bigger instruments, the instruments from the second half of the 19th century and going into the early part of the 20th century. But up here, we have those um, square pianos along the back wall there um, that I mentioned before. And just to let people know of the, the, the breadth of the collection, um, that instrument that I was playing before was um, created around 1770. We've got an English instrument uh, from sometime in the 1780s. We don't know an exact date. We have uh, an instrument made by Clementi uh, next to that, which is from, we think, 1806. Beautifully decorated square piano. Uh, Clementi was a really interesting uh, uh, individual, Italian um, by birth. He would have seen himself, though, as a Londoner. Um, he excelled not only as a musician and as a composer and as a publisher, but as an instrument maker. Um, and he was one of the first to uh, probably recognise the domestic market, um, both in terms of making instruments um, that, that people would want to have in their homes, these square pianos that are quite portable, but also in writing music, and music for a certain sort of um, group of people, mainly female, mainly people who uh, were staying at home, and if, as many people will know, being educated in, in music as well as uh, being able to sew and things like that were, were uh, things that were deemed uh, absolutely essential for, for women of a certain standing. Um, so it's wonderful to have one of Clementi's instruments here. And his company uh, eventually became uh, known by a different name, which is Collard and Collard. Oh, yes. um, and we have a Collard and Collard downstairs as well. We also, though, have um, uh, three other square pianos here. Um, one of them is uh, Viennese from about 1810, uh, which has uh, got the name Knam on it. Uh, sadly, it needs a lot of work still. It's on trestle tables and not even on its own legs at the moment. And we have an English piano uh, by a maker called Astor, which is actually uh, related to the famous family uh, that also went to America. Um, uh, we know the name of the Astor, uh, the Astoria Hotel, um, and that's the same family. And in the corner we have another very curious instrument from uh, the Nordic um, part of Europe, um, probably from about 1860, which is very, very late for square piano. Um, by that stage, the upright was becoming much more um, popular. But we have that as the collection for these sort of uh, square instruments. And another beautiful instrument as well that I might just mention, uh, which is in the corner, which um, is actually completely disguised. Um, it's, uh, well, I'll go and open it and I'll tell you. So looking at the instrument, um, you probably wouldn't know that it is an instrument. It's um, essentially a sewing table. Um, so I've just opened the lid now, and you can see that it's um, beautifully inlaid. Um, the woodwork is extraordinary. If one lowers the, uh, the front of the instrument, though, and takes up what looks like a clever collection of boxes for one's um, needles and other things uh, to do with sewing, uh, one discovers that inside is a small keyboard. Um, and sadly, it needs a bit of a tune. 
has sound which is really quite extraordinary. So um, is it a hidden piano? Is, is it a, a piano that uh, a lady um, who uh, was thought to be sewing um, could sort of sneakily sort of uh, actually play some music on? It's hard to say. Um, it's an extraordinarily beautiful, uh, beautifully crafted uh, instrument. Um, we do know that um, having a little keyboard, for example, in a desk was not unknown. Liszt, for example, had a writing table that had a built-in mini keyboard so that if he was sitting at the desk um, writing a piece of music and wanted to check that something was the right chord or the right um, interval, he could sort of just play it without moving. But I've never seen anything uh, quite as delicate as this, which is also manufactured as a, as a sewing table. Absolutely exquisite. I, I wonder if there's something about um, women having to be modest and hiding their accomplishments. So she could be playing her piano, but then she could sort of um, also be tending to her handwork and so Could well be. Could well be. It's hard to say. But it's, um, it's, it, it really does go to the heart of uh, sort of the Victorian uh, notion or the Victorian lady, I guess. Um, and uh, apart from anything, it's very beautiful. It's also very rare. Um, there's, uh, there's lots of information about um, these instruments on the School of Music's website. Um, and so anybody who's interested can uh, go and have a look there. But we're very lucky indeed to have it. It was um, donated to the collection uh, by Liz Walden uh, about uh, 11 years ago, I think it was. So beautiful instrument. really superb. And the, the inlay of the top is just exquisite, isn't it? Mm. It's incredibly fine work. Yeah. So inlaid with um, wood and is there a bit of glass in there as well? It's hard to tell. Well, I wonder if this is sort of almost coral. Yeah, it could, it could actually be just painting on it. It's yeah. hard to tell. You need somebody with more expert uh, knowledge of woodwork than I. <laughs> well, it's probably a good um, time for us to talk, actually, now that you've mentioned this piano about um, women and the piano in the 19th century. So we might just pop back to our little area. So yes, before we um, look at some of the other pianos in this room, um, it's really interesting to know that women were often taught the piano as an accomplishment along with their handwork, drawing, sewing and singing um, and the piano would have been a very important part of their sort of upbringing. Uh, but something happened in the 19th century and they sort of moved out of the drawing room and onto the stage and we do begin to see this development of um, women composers and pianists. Well indeed. Um, we know for example um, Fanny Mendelssohn, who's the brother of Felix Mendelssohn, uh, was incredibly accomplished. Um, it's even been said by some that her, her skills might have been greater than her brother's. Um, there are some works um, that we know are by her, but there are many more that we suspect were by her. And uh, it was simply not the thing that she would do that typically that she would be out there as a composer and publishing her own music or having her own music published. Um, which seems uh, horrible, of course, for today's um, age. Um, but women did also have um, huge success. Um, Clara Wieck, um, who we know as Clara Schumann, um, her father was a very well-known piano teacher and she was a child prodigy. Um, famously, um, Schumann and Clara fell in love. Um, she was 
quite a few years younger than he was, and we're, he was only sort of in his late teens. Um, but eventually, when she turned uh, the age where she could get married, they got married. And for a while, her career really outshone her husband's. Um, there's an anecdote of an episode where they were on tour, um, or where she was on tour. I think they were in Russia. And um, Robert Schumann was there after his wife had played the piano and people sort of asking who he was, um, <laughs> where he, he, he thought really that his reputation should be greater. Um, now, he, um, he, he did have a great reputation, especially um, in Germany and other parts of uh, Europe where his music was um, uh, published widely and known. Um, but after his um, tragic early death, um, in the 1850s, Clara continued as a virtuoso um, and uh, travelled and performed out Europe up until uh, right at the end of the century. Um, so tell me also about some of the other pianos that we have here as we move later into the century. Okay, so looking at the, the, the larger instruments that are lined up in the centre of the room, the first instrument that we have is a harpsichord, um, which is an uh, instrument that was only um, completed last year. So these, and these instruments in the centre of the room here, they're all copies of historical instruments. Back in the 1970s, when the revival for historical instruments um, first got underway, there were some copies of instruments made that weren't really of a high quality, and, and, and the sounds that they made or the way that they felt, um, it's sort of a little bit dubious as to how close um, they were approximating um, those instruments. But in the past, uh, past 20 years anyway, um, the builders who make uh, modern copies of historical instruments are uh, incredibly fine craftsmen. So the harpsichord that we have uh, there was made by Kerry Beebe, uh, a Sydney harpsichord maker, and it's a copy of a Rooker's uh, harpsichord um, uh, from northern part of uh, Europe. Uh, I think they were um, established in Antwerp. Um, the, the town or the city uh, where these instruments were made. And um, sitting next to that, we then have uh, three forte pianos. Well, we call them forte pianos. Um, they would have just been known as pianos then, but we sort of have a word now to make a distinction between these earlier instruments and uh, the instrument that we more recognise as a, as a piano today. Um, so the three are all made by Paul McNulty, uh, who's an American uh, who lives in the Czech Republic. He makes his instruments there. And the three instruments that we have, the first is a copy of an instrument from around 1788. It's a copy of an instrument by um, Johann Stein. And we know that Stein uh, was a very popular maker in Vienna. Um, Mozart absolutely loved his pianos. And Mozart, who died in 1791, this uh, being a copy from 1788, we can sort of fairly, uh, fairly much imagine Mozart playing this uh, in the latter part of his uh, life. And the way that it feels and the sounds that it makes um, are really quite extraordinary. So if I just play a little bit on that instrument. Oh, please do. It, I just also like to say to our listeners, it is the most exquisite-looking instrument. It's this beautiful um, delicate, um, petite instrument. So if I just play a little bit of... Uh... So you can hear that the sound is very different 
um, to how we imagine a modern sound. It's, it's much lighter in sound. It, uh, it doesn't have the same sort of strength as a modern piano. Um, and of course, its keyboard is um, not only um, shorter, it's also reversed in the sense that all of what we would think is the white, uh, the white keys are actually black keys and vice versa. Um, so really beautiful. Um, and hearing it in, in context, not only in, in solo piano works, but for example, um, uh, the National Opera Company recently put on a production here of a Mozart opera. Uh, in Canberra, and this instrument was used um, in that, in the orchestra, and it would have been the conductor then who was playing or accompanying the recitatives on this um, forte piano, which is what they used then. And it really makes a difference to the, um, the overall sound of, of the, uh, the ensemble. Next to that we have another of Paul McNulty's instruments, and this is a copy of a piano uh, by Anton Walter. And Walter was another um, maker in Vienna. This one, the date of it is, I think it's a copy of 1796. So a few years later um, than the one that I just played. And looking at it, you probably get the sense it's already a little bit heavier. Um, it's already, um, seems to have sort of more um, sort of stature um, to it. Um, and this is the sort of instrument that um, Beethoven, for example, would have been playing at the very beginning of his mm. um, career when he was uh, first in Vienna. So if I play a little bit of Beethoven yes, on that. That would be wonderful, because we associate him with some sort of enormous grand piano in the centre of the stage, but this is actually very delicate, isn't it? instrument which is then a copy um, from uh, of, a, of an instrument from 1819 that uh, was made by Conrad Graf. Um, so 1819 we now get to the end part of Beethoven's life um, and again looking at it it's it's much more substantial um, rather than these sort of spindly sort of legs um, that the previous two instruments have had. Um, this one has really quite massive sort of um, legs. You can hear that it's a uh, much, we can see rather, that it's a much um, heavier instrument overall, whereas these um, two instruments that I was just playing could be lifted quite easily by two people. This one really requires um, three stronger people to, to, to lift it. Um, and you can see also that um, whereas the, the two previous instruments that I was playing, they don't have foot pedals. Um, they both had knee levers um, for, uh, for operating the dampers um, and well, we also have the question of whether or not they have moderators or whether they have a soft pedal. The, um, the Gruff copy though from 1819 has four pedals uh, which might seem unusual. Um, the left and the right ones are, are fairly standard to what we expect in that they're um, 
a sustaining pedal and a soft pedal. But the two um, middle pedals are actually moderators. Mm. So this goes back again to what I was talking about, first of all, with the, the Henryan uh, instrument, where you could have a piece of um, cloth or felt or whatever that would go um, somehow um, against the strings or, or would affect how the hammers are hitting the strings. That would create a different sound. Um, and we know the composers did like to um, experiment with these instruments that had different sorts of... Um, uh, sound possibilities. Um, so, um, I mean, it seems much more like a like a, a real piano um, when you're um, sort of uh, sitting at it, um, in the sense that the keyboard now is um, even bigger still. Um, the keys are actually bigger themselves, and one sort of just gets the sense that this is the, the piano as we know it's sort of coming into existence. about that because the actual s sounds changed and the nature of performance changed and the types of um, experimentation that was taking place um, really a lot like art actually you know we we find this sort of in the start of the century this um, adherence to realism and naturalism and then by the sort of 1880s impressionism starts to um, really influence the um, production of art and also music and we have people like Claude Debussy really changing the way the piano is played and experienced. Yeah, well, there, there, and there's a lot of, lot of stuff that happens in the interim there. I mean, looking at these instruments now, um, because they are sort of quite delicate, um, the first thing that will probably um, strike you is that if you play them too loud or too hard, you're going to break them. Um, and following on from Beethoven um, were the... Uh, first group of romantic composers, which included people like Franz Liszt, um, people known as virtuosos. Um, and uh, their constant striving to, to use these instruments to create uh, greater entertainment, really. I mean, uh, both in terms of the amount of sound that you could make out of them uh, and in terms of uh, what one could actually do with one's fingers. Um, on the keyboard um, led to uh, greater and greater innovation. So downstairs we have two very interesting um, instruments. We have a playel and we have an erard. And at this time the center for piano making um, probably can be seen to move away from Vienna um, and to, um, to, to Paris. Um, playel was the preferred instrument of Chopin and playel was one of the first um, who uh, decided to move away from using leather on the, the uh, hammers. All of these ha uh, pianos that I've just played now, their hammers uh, are covered with leather. Um, and Playel started experimenting with using felt. 
And this used to com uh, created a completely different uh, sound. And many people see this as going hand in hand with the music that Chopin was writing. So not only do you have continually bigger and bigger instruments, uh, instruments that are more strong, uh, instruments that also start moving away from having a wooden frame to having uh, either a composite iron frame or, or a wooden frame with iron bars added to eventually what's going to be a complete iron frame which uh, allows much greater tension to be brought across the strings um, and therefore to, to become a more powerful instrument. Along with these things we have these other innovations such as uh, using different materials to cover the, the hammers. So Playel, uh, we have two instruments by Playel. One is from 1847 which uh, is just two years before Chopin died so historically that's a, a very sort of um, important time to, to have an example of an instrument from. And then with Erard, Sebastian Erard was Liszt's favourite piano maker and Erard made uh, all sorts of discoveries but particularly with actions. Uh, he invented what was known as the double escapement action. Um, way too detailed to try and go into here and I'm not really the expert to be speaking to either but essentially it allowed the keys to be played much more rapidly. Um, with these instruments here, um, the Stein for example which doesn't have a back check, um, if one plays too fast uh, if one gets a little bit too adventurous, um, one can sort of um, get in the way of the mechanism and it doesn't work um, effectively. Um, with Erard's double escapement action, it meant that you could play, uh, well, if anybody knows the music of Liszt, um, they'll know how detailed and, and demanding that music can be. That, w that came about as a result of um, uh, these continual developments. Um, and although we don't have an example, um, it would be nice to have one, um, we also have uh, a company like Steinway. Now, um, the Steinwegs uh, were a family of instrument makers in, in Europe, and one of them, Henry, um, went to America uh, in, I'm probably going to get this wrong, I think in the 1860s, it might have been 1870s, I'm not quite sure, um, and he anglicised the name to Steinway. And the company there was incredibly successful, and Steinway were the uh, biggest owners of patents uh, in, in piano manufacturing. Um, even uh, something that we still see is quite common, even though a lot of pianists don't use it, is the middle pedal on a, on a modern um, grand piano, which is a, a very sort of, a sort of selective sustain pedal, so to speak. That was patented um, by Steinway, I think in the 1880s. Um, somebody can actually probably find the exact date. Um, but uh, yeah, these innovations uh, continued um, and eventually Steinway um, uh, opened a factory in Europe as well. And, and to tie it in with Debussy, um, we have uh, downstairs a Playel from 1898, so that's a piano that was built by the Playel company in France. And we could speculate that this is the sort of instrument that Debussy was playing, but one imagines that he was rather more interested in the Steinways that he was um, uh, starting to see. Uh, very precise and detailed uh, instruments they were. But what they enabled, or these types of instruments enabled a composer like Debussy to do, is to focus purely on sound. Um, in terms of the development of music history, Debussy was, uh, you know, even in his student years, 
Um, so we're talking the late 1880s, uh, the early 1890s. He was sort of a rebel. Um, there's um, fairly easy to find conversations between uh, Debussy and his harmony teacher at the time, uh, which have been sort of written down. Uh, you can find them in books and also on the internet, uh, tran uh, transcripts of these conversations, where his teacher's sort of almost provocat provocatively asking him about, about certain chord progressions. Um, and whether or not they sounded okay. Um, for many years, in a conservative sense, things sounded okay when they were functional in terms of their harmony. Debussy came along and started breaking all of these rules. So uh, even as a student, uh, to a question, um, you know, do these consecutive seventh chords not sound wrong to you? Debussy said, no, that, they sound great. Um, and this was such a liberation uh, of, uh, of music because music then developed uh, in ways that probably couldn't have been imagined uh, at, at the end of the, the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, by let's say the middle of the 20th century. Um, but essentially these... Um, these ideas about uh, harmony, for example, I think they all stemmed from sound and, and really listening to sound and, and the sounds that could be found, for example, on a piano. There's um, a great deal of um, a sense of atmosphere and environment when we get to Impressionist music in many ways, much like the painting movement in itself this sort of sense of you actually being in an environment and in space as if the chords or the notes actually are representing some, something else that's happening in nature or in you know, light or colour or... Um. Yeah, and we know that um, Debussy and well, the French musicians at the time were very much affected um, by what was happening uh, with art. Debussy himself didn't like the term Impressionism. He, he didn't want to be called an Impressionist. Um, but we see, uh, for example, Monet um, uh, did some uh, sort of experimental series of paintings. One is the Haystack, Haystack series, where essentially he was painting the same object, but um, really showing people how different it looked depending on the light. Um, you know, we might say, what's the colour of hay? And we might say, well, it's a yellowy beige sort of colour. But you look at those paintings and you see um, that uh, it depends on the, if it's sunset, of course, mm. maybe it's going to be purple. Um, there's also, I think, a series of paintings of Rouen Cathedral there as well. Is, which yeah, is very so we see um, something very, very much the same with Debussy. If you take um, his Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn, very famous work, uh, it starts off with a solo flute playing a very simple melody. Um, after a few bars, that melody comes back 
uh, again, but it's harmonized this time. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head what chord it is. Um, but in harmonizing the melody a different way, it's sort of like we see it in a different light. And then a minute later, the theme comes back again, and we find that Debussy has harmonized it in a completely different way yet again. And so this element of what we see in Impressionism, we, we, we have a direct sort of correlation to uh, in music. But I think what you were asking the more about, perhaps, was just the sound world. Um, and, yeah, that was an incredible loosening of of the notion of what music could be. It became, as you said, very much more atmospheric. Well, let's, um, speaking of avant-garde and, and you know, changing the, the tone and the look and the feel of everything, let's talk a little bit about Rachmaninoff and his early, um, early uh, music. Um, I know that, for example, that his Symphony No. 1, which he, um, I think, played in 1897, was deeply criticised. And then by 1901, he comes out with the Piano Concerto No. 2, which is rapturously acclaimed. And I sort of feel that... There's probably um, the artists such as um, Debussy or Rachmaninoff are sort of pushing the boundaries and then people start to become accustomed to it and, and less resistant to it and then start to love it and embrace it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that um, transition of his music in those, from the 19th century through to the 20th century? Uh, 
okay, so for a bit of background, um, Rachmaninoff's first symphony was a student work. Um, he uh, had done his studies in Moscow, um, but the performance, well, there was a first performance of the work by a student orchestra uh, under Glazunov, who apparently was drunk, um, in St. Petersburg. And of course, the people in St. Petersburg were going to hate it, um, no matter what the music was like. Um, for many years, everybody thought the, the, the music was lost. Rachmaninoff talked about destroying the score, and we still don't know where the score is. Um, but in the uh, 1940s, um, in a library in St. Petersburg, they discovered the parts, and they were able to put the first symphony back together again. And what we know is that um, orchestrally, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, even imagining a student orchestra now playing it, especially with the, the fast middle movement, I mean, it would sound pretty horrible. Um, so it probably did sound horrible um, in the performance, and, and the people weren't going to like it anyway. And having a, a conductor uh, who's not sober doesn't help either. <laughs> um, but uh, it led to a period of depression for Rachmaninoff, which is very well known. Um, although, uh, well, people, people think that it's the hypnotherapy of a doctor, Nikolai Dahl, who sort of cured Rachmaninoff by getting Rachmaninoff to say the sentence, I will write a great piano concerto over and over again, um, that cured him. And, and we know that Rachmaninoff had actually got a commission for a piano concerto and he did want to write a new one that was um, from a music society in London. Um, what uh, has been speculated more recently, and this was a theory propagated by Rachmaninoff's grandson, Alexander. Apparently, Dr. Dahl had a very attractive daughter, and it was the, the visits to the house uh, to see her that sort of got Rachmaninoff out of his funk, um, so to speak. But the first symphony, as we know today, was a very modern-leaning work, and the second piano concerto that you mentioned um, is quite the opposite. Um, when Rachmaninoff did get back to composing for a good 10 years, he uh, didn't push really any boundaries, uh, well, pushing boundaries, he, he didn't push his audience, he didn't write challenging music, he wrote music that was very uh, uh, pleasing, music that was very melodic, and, uh, and of course the second piano concerto written in 1901 um, is rightly, um, rightly famous um, for its approachability. Um, but rather sadly for Rachmaninoff, he, he wanted to be taken more seriously as a composer, which of course meant being modern, and um, as he tried to write more modern music, especially then after he left um, Russia uh, at the time of the 1917 revolution, um, he, he had only mixed success. Some of the works that he, he thought would be great um, really have never caught on. And then other works like the Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini and the Symphonic Dances, which is his very last composition um, from the 1930s, uh, have been huge successes. Um, so... Yeah, there's been that constant development. Um, so it's it's interesting um, to to feel the, this sort of reception of music at the time, and I just wondered if we could talk a little bit about how the process worked for a composer. Um, obviously, they they may be commissioned to write a piece of music. Perhaps more often than not, they would be, um, and then there'd be the sort of performance of it and the acclaim, and then the review. I suppose how how did it actually work in in practical in, in practice for a musician in the, in the period? I think like today, it's a combination of luck and fame. Um, I think uh, you know, looking at the the composers who found success during their lifetime. Um, they either were 
created a, a certain amount of fame with a, with a certain work perhaps um, and then were able to build on that by, by continuing to write and putting their name out there. Um, or, or they're able to do, just trade on fame. I mean, the, this idea of the personality. Um, you know, we see that with Liszt, um, and even before Liszt with Paganini. Um, so uh, one, one doesn't have to think too hard to, to see the correlations today. Um, people get known by their reputations. And it's a funny thing. I mean, we, we sort of think that it's probably all just a meritocracy that um, the composers who wrote the best music are the, the composers whose names we know. Um, but quite often it's... it's um, people these days when they go to, go to a concert hall, um, part of the experience is to see somebody famous. Mm. Um, it's, it's well known that, uh, that uh, you know, if, if, if you do... If you play music for people where they have no idea who it is, and it can obviously be very disconcerting, um, but they're not going to have some of the reactions that they do if they're in a concert hall and they're, and they're listening to the greatest violinist or the greatest singer. There's something about being up close to somebody like that that really creates um, an experience which is then really, well, is it augmented by the music or does that augment the music? Um, who's to say? Um, but with Rachmaninoff, for example, I mean, he... Being a, a Russian composer, Russia was not party to the International Convention of, on, of Copyright um, at the time when he wrote his first pieces of music, which included a, a prelude in C-sharp minor, which piano students to this day still play. Um, so because um, it was out of copyright, I mean, he got paid uh, probably the equivalent of 20 or $30 for that piece of music. And then it could be published by everybody. And it was published all around the world. It was known as the Bells of Moscow, um, all sorts of time. I mean, and of course, because anybody sort of owned it, they could call it whatever they wanted. Um, now, <laughs> Rachmaninoff was only in his late teens, I think, when he wrote that. But then throughout his performance career, and it's his performance career that he that we know him for, sort of in the second half of his life, he was obliged to play that at the end of every single concert. I mean, um, and of course, he, he was grateful for the fame. On the, on the one hand, he realised that that piece of music, while he got no money, or very little money for actually writing it, mm. um, he lived off that piece to a certain extent for the rest of his life because everybody knew his name. Mm. Um, but it... He hated, he hated the piece. He used to say, you know, I've written other preludes which are better. Can I play you one of those? Um, and occasionally, but well, at, at almost every concert, it would be demanded. And if one goes back and looks at reviews, quite often he finishes the program and then he plays an encore and then maybe he'll play another encore and then there are people sort of who've rushed, rushed up to the stage who are all just sort of like saying, you've got to play the C-sharp minor prelude and then he'd play it. And a few concerts where he didn't, he used to really disappoint um, the audience.
Mm, going back to your question, I mean, fame um, is such a, a an essential part of a sociological approach to looking at music, really, to, to perhaps explain um, uh, why there why why there is a certain reception sort of history to the the works that we know. Um, do you think you could play some of the C sharp minor prelude? Not on one of these instruments no. here, though, sadly, because but we might um, put some in. We might splice it in. Okay, I mean, so the instruments that we have downstairs, um, sadly, we're, we've got a Blutner um, from 1911. Um, which is actually on loan. Um, somebody's loaned it to the collection, um, which is sort of approximating um, Rachmaninoff's, uh, the sort of piano that Rachmaninoff would have played. But I think this is the next next growth area in terms of performance musicology. Um, Paul McNulty, for example, whose instruments um, I was playing earlier up in this room, um, he's now also making copies of, of instruments uh, of uh, so, for example, he's making a striker. Um, Brahms um, had striker, who's it's a, a piano company, a piano making company that actually goes back to Stein, um, uh, the the first of the forte pianos that I played a little bit earlier. Um, we know that um, Brahms got a striker, really, really loved it, and then had that as his piano for the rest of his life, which goes almost up until the beginning of the um, 20th century. Um, but I, I suspect that um, it will continue with um, piano makers trying to copy, for example, uh, a Steinway from 1920 or 1930. While these instruments um, of this type that are still around um, they're not really, they, they don't really give you an idea of how they would have sounded when they're, they're new. Um, one of the problems with um, big pianos, um, when they got big iron frames and they could have a massive amount of sort of <clears throat> weight stretched across the strings, um, it meant that the soundboards became very, uh, a lot more fragile in a sense. And most, I mean, a modern Steinway today is probably only got about 20 years uh, in it before its soundboard starts deteriorating. Mm. So the notion of trying to and this is what would probably interest me if I had the opportunity, finding either a mint condition piano from the 1930s or the 1920s, or finding a copy, a beautifully made copy, to see exactly how it would have sounded mm. and, and felt. Um, I think that would be uh, of quite a bit of interest, because we, we know that these pianos uh, were very different to the sort of uh, concert grand that uh, became common from the, the 1960s, 70s and 80s, which, mm. and the, and the mod that, that sort of model really hasn't changed a lot today when one uh, thinks about what's on the, the, the big concert stages and the big concert halls around the world. We might try and splice in some of that C-sharp minor prelude for our listeners because it's such a great story, isn't it? Um, I Just a few more questions to go, but one of them, just listening to you speak about this, um, this idea of this sort of um, virtuoso concert pianist and the whole um, concert circuit throughout Europe and America, no doubt, in the 19th century um, began to evolve. When did it really start to take place? Because you know, there's this sort of cultural tourism starts to evolve and, you know, well-to-do people would travel all through Europe just to hear certain people play. Um, you know, I know Wagner's operas, for example, which would only be played in certain places. Um, people would travel specifically to hear those performances. When, when did this sort of start to happen for the concert pianist? Oh, well, in terms of touring, I mean, it had been around for quite a while. Mozart, for example, I mean, it, you'd... you'd 
<laughs> the parents would lo lose custody of their child uh, today if you, if you think about um, what um, Mozart was sort of asked to do at the age of sort of seven, eight, nine, ten, etc. And, um, you know, considering how um, difficult it was to travel back then and how dangerous it could be as well to travel, um, you know, we look back to there and we see that that's really the beginning of, well, probably is the beginning, somebody might be able to find something beforehand, of the, the touring uh, musician. And we see it in the careers of somebody like Paganini. I mean, it's extraordinary to, to, to find out how many people actually heard Paganini. Um, and they heard him because he, he came to their town. It wasn't because they were travelling. Liszt um, and, you know, the whole period known as Listomania, um, he was a, um, an incredible traveller. Um, traveling all around and um, with the with the growing fame of, of musicians and also the, the wealth um, of musicians uh, as well I mean as soon as traveling the Atlantic um, became uh, possible uh, we have all sorts of people uh, in America Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto for example was premiered in Boston um, by Hans von Buller who was um, uh, a pianist well known to Liszt and Wagner, um, for example. Um, so you know, there's there's this notion where music really starts to spread because sort of people uh, tour it. Of course, it's much more common these days that people, well, up until COVID, that people, as you were saying, will travel to somewhere like Bayreuth mm. just to hear a Wagner opera. Mm. Um, there's also this development of that sort of um, individual genius, and I, I have this portrait here, which is quite famous of Franz Liszt from 1839 by. Henri Lehmann, which is in the Musée Carnivalet in Paris, and it's just this fabulous portrait of a brooding Liszt standing there in this wonderful black outfit against the grey wall with his face as like glowing with light, as if, you know, the whole genius is there, and just one hand, just you see this one hand there, which of course is the pathway to his fame. Um, he, he's a sort of a particular... Um, person who sort of imbues this idea really, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, well, it was all about image. I mean, it's uh, amazing to, I mean, it'd be interesting for, for advertising people today to reflect on, on, on the notion of how long people have been sort of governing their, or managing their, their image. Paganini, for example, I mean, there was a famous story, which is um, probably not true at all. Well, there's, there's, there's actually many different elements of the story, and pr probably none of the elements are true. Um, but Paganini sort of traded off that. There's this slightly sort of um, sold his soul to the devil to, to, to get genius mm. uh, sort of um, uh, approach. But uh, it, look, image is, is really important. Another image that you might want to put up on, on the, the site is uh, a famous painting called List at the Piano. And uh, in it, you see Liszt, and there's a collection of people around him uh, who can all be identified. Um, but what's extraordinary is uh, on the piano, at the end of the piano, behind which is a, a window, and out through the window there's obviously a very stormy sky. But on the end of the piano, in front of the window, is this gigantic bust of Beethoven. Mm -hmm. And Beethoven was probably the first composer for whom um, the creation of a myth um, became really uh, important important and you know that myth um, continues to this day I mean there's a Be Beethoven is regarded as the the most popular composer so if your job is to put on 
concerts, if you've got an orchestra and you've got to put on concerts and make sure that you have the most number of people there, you'll program Beethoven because you know that most the most number of people come along to Beethoven and people have done all sorts of research on this. Um, but that's not to say that, that many people might really know what's different about Beethoven's music to, let's say, some of the finer works by a composer like Clementi, for example. I mean, that's where it all becomes a little bit um, muddy. But to go back to the, the picture that I'm telling you about, though, um, what's funny is that researchers have worked out that all of the people in the picture were never in the same town at the same time. <laughs> and the it's picture is actually, well, it's advertising. It was mm. for Beckstein. Beckstein commissioned the artist, whose name I can't remember at the moment, um, to paint this picture to advertise Beckstein pianos in the 1850s or the 1860s. Well, piano um, advertising is fascinating in its own right. And I'm going to put up a whole lot of different ads from different periods um, because the language that's used is remarkable and... Um, the, you know, the sort of idea that you'd, there's one in the um, sketches of the city, which is by an Australian writer, R.H. Um, Kroll, and he has this little excerpt in the front that says, oh yes, we went down Collins Street and we went into um, the, the piano place, and I think it's called Carnegie and Sons, and we bought a player, I think it was, and then we bought a player, um, and we took home two pianos that day. And it's just like this sort of idea that this is what you do, you go out shopping and you buy your piano, and so the role of advertising was actually really important and the great fairs were important too to show off these remarkable instruments. Yeah and I think the the one that you're referring to there I think it was a Ronish. Ronish yes it was Ronish. Yeah, and right we here. have an example of, of well, an incredible example of one of those downstairs um, that was probably created for the Nicholson um, piano company um, to the extent that um, it has brass inlay on its case mm -hmm. of Nicholson's um, and this instrument uh, Built in 1880 or 1881, uh, massive piano um, would have been uh, the sort of piano that you would have seen on a stage when Brahms might have been, uh, at the time that his second piano concerto would have been uh, first performed. Um, but yeah, the, the advertising and the, well, the companies that sell pianos, I mean, be, because pianos were so popular. Um, there's a great book by Michael Atherton uh, on the history of the piano in Australia. And one really senses the, um, the degree to which it was uh, uh, a very financially successful operation to be in. Mm. Um, it started off with some of the, the, the makers, for example, Beale, uh, a name of a piano that one still sees today. Beale first started off um, importing some pianos from, from Germany, they're known as Habsburg Beals, before uh, eventually he was able to set up his own factory and they produced thousands upon thousands of pianos. And again, this is, um, you know, well, it's, it's going into the 20th century, it's going into the time where uh, recorded music will become increasingly popular. But up until that time when people could uh, quite easily just switch on a radio or, or put a record on a, on a record player and get a decent quality sound. Up until that time, um, the piano was the, the centre of, of uh, or music making, but also quite a big centre of what was essentially entertainment in the, mm. in the family home. Um, and of course, pianos still—they're st still made. Um, I think the biggest market these days is China, mm. um, but uh, there are still thousands of pianos being made. 
every well, year. That's a great sort of place to end, and I, I wanted to just uh, ask you a little about about the enduring quality of the nineteenth century piano and and the composers of that period, because. I noticed, you know, my, my daughter, for example, 15, she plays the bass guitar, but her playlists are all full of things like Chopin, Liszt, um, and other composers from the 19th century, and her friends and her share um, the music that they've found, classical music from the period. And I just, I wondered what you, what you think is the, what is the enduring quality that appeals to a 15-year-old school kid um, who's actually been brought up on very contemporary pop music that's, you know, um, um, you know, often made through synthesizers and electronic sounds and, um, you know, DJing basically, but yet here this 19th century sound endures. Well, I think acoustical music I, is very different to, to electronic music. I, I think there's a real sort of um, sense of sound. But, it, of course, you get a lot of um, popular and contemporary music that's also acoustic these days. I think that... Um, it's a completely different sound world to, to a great extent. I'd imagine for a young person these days who's only sort of a, um, so far encountered sort of things uh, in sort of popular mediums. Um, but I think also it's... Um, the music has... The music is a vehicle for uh, sometimes quite profound self-expression. Very personal and very, uh, very particular sort of form of uh, expression. And I think to to come across somebody like Heifetz or, or Chrysler playing the violin um, in some of this music or, or some of the great, as you mentioned, um, examples of romantic music and to hear a great performer playing this music. Um, it can be perhaps quite um, eye-opening to, to hear that, that music can be so different to, to what's on your standard sort of playlist. Mm. Well, Scott Davy, thank you so much for taking us through this remarkable collection. I hope it's given a window to people on what the treasures are held in this um, fabulous school of music here at the Australian National University. It's been wonderful hearing you play and I'm hoping that we're going to be able to splice in some other excerpts of you playing on the 19th century pianos downstairs where we couldn't record today. Um, and I'd just like to thank you very much on behalf of all of our listeners for joining me today. Thank you, Lara. It's been lovely to talk to you. So that's a few bars of Chopin's Etude, Opus Three, uh, sorry, Opus Ten, Number Three in E Major, played on a flail that was built in 1847, and I'm in a room that's uh, almost filled with these wonderful old instruments that form part of the Keyboard Institute collection. And this instrument, as you can probably hear, 
could do with a little bit of a tune. And this is a problem that we have. There's so much maintenance that um, we'd like to be able to do, but we're sort of restricted by funds. So any of your listeners are keen to get involved and to help us out, of course, we'd love to hear from you. 